Amen. Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? Great. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Okay? <laughs> Trust me. So uh, grab them, go there. If you have children, you should run to the exit right now. Check them into New Gen. This is not a kid-friendly environment. The Bible is really not a safe book for children, especially judges, especially judges. And so in order for me to handle it the way I need to handle it, your children... Uh, don't need to be here. So I've, we've warned New Jersey, no matter where you are, at Bay Meadows, in the sanctuary, at 522, whatever service you're at, you need to take your kids now, okay? I'll give you, I'll do a little bit of intro to give you a chance to go. I don't see very many people moving, so good luck with this, okay? Because you're in for a doozy. <laughs> so uh, uh, two announcements before I really get digging in. Uh, you know how about every week I like to say this one time when I was in Israel? Well, I've got good news for you. The next time I'm in Israel, you can come with me, all right? Is that cool? Yeah, you can come. So here's how you do it. On Monday, we're not going to open it up until Monday because some of you wouldn't listen to the sermon right now. You would go online and you would sign up and pay your deposit and then, you know. So on Monday, if you go to the website, coe22.com slash Israel, you can sign up and I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to go. It is first come, first serve. And so go there. Uh, you don't even really have to pray about it. I prayed about it. God wants you to go. All right. So I'm going, I will teach the Bible in the places where it's talking about. That's what we will do together. All right. And so don't think mission trip. This does not count as your tithe, nor does it count as a mission trip. All right. Think like spirit filled vacation. That's what this is like. And, uh, and don't don't bring your children, leave them at home. This is a, this is going to be spirit filled vacation. Remember if the kids come, it's a trip. If the kids stay home, it's a vacation. All right. So, uh, that's what it's going to be. It is going to be about us deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ. I would like for you to be there. And so sign up for that. Also next week begins a brand new series called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word that Jesus used the first time the idea of church was ever, was ever talked about out loud. And so we're going to spend eight weeks talking about the values and the vision of the church of 1122. That begins next week. And so you need to be here for that. Let me pray. And then we're going to dig in to the sermon. Our good and gracious heavenly father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, your holy inspired word that is breathed out by you for every generation and every time and every context and every community for every people group so that they could know the revealed truth of who you are. And so Lord, as we wrestle through some very difficult texts in our time together, God, I pray that the word will wrestle us. Holy Spirit, that you, the real preacher here at 1122, Holy Spirit, that you will teach us and you will convict us and then you will give us the power to not just be merely hearers of the word and so fool ourselves, but do what it says. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Um, <clears throat> we are in our final week of this series on Judges called Again. And if you'll remember the very first week, we talked about um, one of the points of the book of Judges is this cycle of stupidity is really what it is, is that, that the, the nation of Israel goes through over and over and over this cycle of surrender. They're doing good with the Lord to self-reliance and they think I got this, but the real reality is, is I don't got this, which goes to self-deception, which always leads to a self-inflicted wound that goes eventually to self-preservation where they realize they're at the bottom of the pit again. So they cry out to the one whose rules they broke to be the one that saves them much like we did when we were teenagers crying out to our parents after we broke their rules to come get us out of the place that they were trying to keep us out of by having the rules, amen or ouch, but it was just true for me. And then they do it again and again and again. And I don't know about you, but I, I can look at the nation of Israel and be like, what is wrong with you? And then I see me in the mirror and I ask the same question. And so it's just over and over and over this, I wish I had a more rich theological term for it. But in my world, I just call this the cycle of crappy Christianity. It's just that, that last night of camp Christianity. You go out, you fill up your sin bucket all year long, and then you lay it on, on the altar at camp, and then really nothing changes except you cry a few more tears, you pray a few more prayers. You promise some things, you make resolutions that just lead to remorse, and then it's repeat. But there's, a, there's another way to do this Christian life, and that, this is this cross-centered life that we looked at on week one. And the reason I want to come back to it is because we're in this cycle again. 
And it's that, that moment when we come to ultimate surrender of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which for many of us in the room, it happened, it happened here through the ministry of the church of 1122. And that what we understand as gospel-centered Christians is that the gospel is not just our ticket to heaven. The gospel does not just justify us, but the gospel also sanctifies us. That the cross is not just that thing that, that invites us into heaven, but the cross is also that thing that invites us into the Christian life. And so simultaneously, two things happen in us and to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. One is that we have an increased understanding of our utter and total depravity. And I know this, I know this offends some of you, but I don't care. You're not a snowflake. You're not a rainbow. You're not a Skittle. Your kindergarten teacher lied to you. You know why? Because she's a liar and you're a wretched black hearted sinner. Me too. That's just what it is. We're not bad people that need to get better. We are dead people that need to come alive. And that's what the cross does for us. And when, we, when you, I don't know about you, when I first became a Christian, I thought, whoo, man, I need to do a few things better. And then I began to realize the utter depth of my depravity. And, and as bad as you, some of you think I am, it's much worse than you even think. All you can see is like how crooked I am on Facebook. You don't even know the crazy going on in here right now. Simultaneous to that, our understanding of the holiness of God grows larger and larger and larger. Not because he gets more holy, but because by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of his word, our understanding of the majesty of God goes bigger and bigger and bigger. And as that chasm grows wider and wider and wider in our life, there's only one thing that can fill it, and it's the ever-expanding cross of Jesus Christ. And what we begin to understand is that I am a wretched, wretched sinner, but I have a greater Savior. That my sin was so bad that somebody had to die for it, but I am so loved by my Heavenly Father that he sent his only begotten Son that he was willing to die for me. And that stirs in us something different than a cycle of crappy Christianity. And so, one of the things, you know, in the past two weeks, you, you guys really should say thank you to me for two of the best Baptist preachers you've ever heard in your life. Dr. Mac Brunson and Pastor Ryan Stone, okay? Two of the best Baptists I've ever met in my life. And one of the things that Pastor Stone taught us is that this isn't just a, a cycle, it's sort of a, a downward spiral of depravity. That after each judge rises up to save Israel, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And last week, the very last judge shows up, his name's Samson. And when he dies, after he dies, that's when we get into chapter 17. And if you, if you skip down to chapter 17, verse 6, you're going to get these sandwich verses, these bookend verses. 17, 6, and, and the very last verse of the whole book of Judges says the same thing. It says this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And see, the reality is, is as I read that, I'm not sure if that's just describing Israel or if it's describing our country right now. I mean, let's be honest. Israel and America, they're like the Johnny Manziel of countries. All right? All this talent, all this potential. I mean, Right? You could be a bazillionaire if you could just play a little football. You don't even have to play anymore, right? You did all your playing. You could watch another guy in front of you play, and you could be a bazillionaire, but you can't because you're an idiot, all right? And then you look at us. You look at Israel as a people. You look at us as a people, and you got all this potential, God's hand of favor upon us, and then it looks like that everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. You see, it's been a rough two weeks. I've been out two weeks. I don't think I can leave two weeks anymore. Here's what happened while I was gone. Two racially charged deaths of African-American men sparking more hurt and more pain because of generational racism. Let me just tell you, if you're African-American or from any minority, please hear my heart here. This is a movement for all people to, to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And before we figure out the facts, the first step of a Christian is to weep with those who weep. And then, right on the heels of that, two ambushes, actually three since the time I wrote this down, three ambushes on police officers, men and women who give their lives to protect us. And so for the men and women that are part of the police force, 
You will always have family and friends here at the Church of 1122, and we stand behind you because you stand in front of us to protect us. There's a terrorist attack in France killing over 80 people. There's a military coup in Turkey. An Islamic fundamentalist gets on a bus in Germany with an ax and a knife and starts killing people. A young man kills his sister in what he calls an honor killing because of her social media posts. The pastor of the third largest church in our country gets fired because of immorality. And then not to mention our two presidential candidates, can I just be honest here? Not exactly models of character and integrity. Now, I know you're going to figure out which one you think is going to be a better president, but I wouldn't let them in our youth group. I'm just saying, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I look forward to not reading those emails. So here we go. Not to mention, not to mention, while I was gone in two weeks, there were 40,000 children aborted. That happens every two weeks. 43% of children woke up in our country with no dad in their life, in their life. There are still 25 million slaves being trafficked today, which is about twice as many as the total slave population in the transatlantic slave period. This is the kind of world that we live in. And of those 25 million slaves, 80% are female, half of them are children, and 90% of them are slaves in the sex industry. What happens? What, how in the world do you get here? I mean, really, how do you get here? It sounds a lot like in those days there was no king in our own world and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I can tell you how you get there one step at a time. That's how you get there. You get to utter depravity, not just as an individual and not just as a family, but as a people group. You get there just one step at a time. Proverbs 22, 3 and Proverbs 27, 12. They say the same thing, which if you do Bible study, you might need to pay attention to that. The God that spoke everything into existence, like one day he went, son, and a son popped up there. But when he wrote this verse, a few chapters later, he went, jot that one down again. I I want him to remember that one. So it says it twice, Proverbs 22, 3 and 27, 12 says this, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple, and this means like simple-minded, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Do you know what that means? That means that every single one of us are on a path that goes somewhere, that we're all gonna end up somewhere. We might as well end up somewhere on purpose. And you and me and your family And my family and even our country and our city, we are on a path that leads somewhere. And what the word of God says is that the prudent sees danger. They say, I see where this path is leading and I'm going to take refuge is the way the NIV translates it. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to get on a different path. But the simple, the dummy, they just see the danger and they think, nah, I'm going to be different. James, the brother of Jesus and James 1, 14 and 15, he says it this way. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, we haven't gotten into sin yet. We're just talking about temptation. And and you remember how the enemy's only got three lures in his tackle box, and he's throwing these lures to try to entice you. And then it says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And there's no better picture of this slide into sin that leads to destruction of epic proportion than the way the book of Judges ends. Because the reality is, is there is no king in Israel. There is no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The other reality is, is every single one of us, since we are not creator but created, we are created to be ruled over, and something will rule over you. And something will rule over me. It will either be our senses, our hormones, this worldview, the stuff of this world, or the one true king that you and I were created to serve. And so if you pick it up in Judges chapter 17, we got to cruise through really fast. You're going too slow so far, so you got to speed up a little bit. Uh, We're going to cruise through 17 and 18 because we're 17 and 18. It just shows us this slide that's going to end up in a place that you're not going to believe. These are actual Bible verses by the time we get to the end. 
So there's this guy named Micah. He seems like kind of this random guy. He sort of is. And he steals 1,100 silver pieces from his mom. And his mom puts a curse on him. That's in verses 1 and 2. And so he, he believes in God enough to be freaked out by this curse. And so he brings the money back to his mom. And this is what happens in verse 3. It says, And Micah restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith. Apparently, there was a 900-piece silver handling fee in this transaction, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And then later in that chapter, he finds an actual Levite who's like a real live minister and he pays him off to work in his house. And he begins to say, now God will surely bless me because I've got a Levite working in my house. Now you might look at that and you'd be like, okay, well, what's the big deal? You see, this is usually how it starts. He just gets a little bit off, not way off. He's actually trying to honor God by breaking the second commandment. That's never a good idea. The, the way a, a pastor that's been influential in my life, Larry Osborne, said it, he says, if I have to do the wrong thing to get the right results, then God is not in it. That's what he begins to do. He's like, look, I want to worship God. This looks very religious, and I'm going to build a shrine in my house. Now, I know God's got some laws about where I'm supposed to worship him and how I'm supposed to worship him and who's supposed to, to wear the ephod, and, and I know God has this commandment about not making any images of him, but you know what? That's okay. Instead of me being created in the image of God, I'm going to create God, create God in my own image. Here's the way it plays out in our world. Well, the God I believe in would never ask me to. The God, the God that I fought, my God would never ask me to do that or never call that wrong. Well, of course he wouldn't because you just created your own God in your own image and that little G God will never ever tell you no because you're actually the king over this false God that you've created. And so this is how it starts. This is how it starts. So there's this Levite who is supposed to be a man of the cloth, a man of God. And he says, okay, I'll take the payoff and work in this little false shrine at your house that you've created. And so what happens between verses five and verse and, and really the end of the chapter, <clears throat> there's this tribe called Dan. And Dan, if you go all the way back to Joshua, they were, they were disobedient to what God had told them to do. And they never moved into their part of the neighborhood they were supposed to move into because there were people there that they would have to throw out and it was too hard. So they took the easy route. So they just never moved in. And so at this point in, in the book of Judges, they're still looking for a place to live because they didn't do what God told them to do. And they stopped by Micah's house one day on their way to, to kick these other people out to move into an easier place in the country to live. And when they do this, they think, well, this is a good idea. So they steal his false gods. They steal uh, his little golden statues. And they've got more money than Micah has, so they pay off his Levite. And they, they adopt him, and they begin to take them with them. And then Micah, this guy, he gets ticked off and he goes chasing after him. He gets a little band of brothers and he's going to go try to beat up this whole tribe. And he can't really do it. But when he chases them down, by the time you get to chapter 18, verse 23, here's what Micah says. It says, and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? Verse 24. And here's how Micah responds. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? This is the best definition of an idol I've ever seen in my life, and I didn't even know it was right here in the book of Judges. This is it. You see, he had put all of his hope and all, and all of his trust in these little gods that he had made instead of the one true God so that when those things were taken away, he felt like he had nothing else left. See, here's the next slide, the next step. The first thing we begin to do is twist the word of God and twist the image of God to create him in our own image. And then we begin to put our hope and trust that anything in anything that's temporary that is not God. And when that thing is taken away, we feel like all of our hope is gone. You see, what Micah, Micah was really, really religious. And the foundation of religion is trying to do stuff to get God to serve you. It is the opposite of the gospel. You see, the gospel of faith is that we surrender to serve God, not try to get him to serve us. 
And so that's how chapter 18 ends. And here's the reason I point it out is this, is this Levite begins to just get off just a degree or two. He's not way off. I mean, he's not doing crazy stuff. It's just, he's just not worshiping correctly. He's, he's put his faith in some idols. And then when you get to the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 1, it starts out this way. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was a sojourner in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Now, what I point out here is this, this Levite is standing on the shoulders of the Levite that went before him. You get this? You see, is that what starts out in one generation is just one or two degrees off. By the time you get a generation away, now you are way, way off. You ever target practice? Anybody ever shoot a gun in target practice? That's okay, raise your hand. You, you, you don't understand how popular you are at the Church of 1122 if you raise your hand right now, all right? It's like worship in here, all right? Praise the Lord. So, so you know, like if you got 30 out 6 or whatever you shoot, you know, and you got your scope dialed in and you're just trying to, you know, shoot at 50 to see where you are. And if you're just like a little, if you're a, a, a quarter of an inch off at 50, man, you stretch that thing out to 300, you can't even hit the target. You see, that's what it's like here. You only get a few degrees off saying, no, God, I'm going to do this part of my life my way. You stay over there. Then by the time you stretch that thing out over a generation, you'll get to places you never in the world thought you could get to. And so this Levite is a sojourner in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and it gets there quick, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. Now, some of you may ask, well, what's a concubine? A concubine, it's just this term in the Old Testament, which basically just means this. It's when a man would treat a woman like a commodity instead of being willing to live in covenant with her. That's the difference. That he would treat her like a commodity. He would both, it was sort of like her husband sexually, but he was also her master socially. And so instead of, I want to covenant before an almighty God because God is a God of covenant and because God loves us first, we can then love one another and love is about laying our lives down for one another. Instead of that, I'm gonna treat you like a commodity and I'm gonna take what I want when I want and then discard you when I'm done. That's what a concubine is. And so, here, let's just get right here quick. Fellas, there's a lot of you treating the girls in your life like concubines. Let me tell you what that means. If you were sleeping someone, with someone that you were not married to, you were treating her like a concubine. And what you're saying from her is, I want to take what I want from you, and I'm not willing to yet live in covenant with you. And so you are. And I know that stings a little, but here's two things. Jimmy cracks corn... It's going to get worse. Okay, so. <clears throat> All right, so she cheats on it. Why? Because when you treat people with such disrespect, then, then don't be surprised when they act disrespectful. And so she treats her like, like a piece of meat, so she begins to believe it. And so she, she is unfaithful to him. And so what she does is like every girl, she runs home. She goes back to her dad's house, okay? And so eventually, eventually he tracks her down back at her dad's house. And, and I don't know it's definitely not out of love. It's just out of lust. He just wants more from her. And so he goes back to her. And it's weird when he gets there, the dad's super stoked to see him. And part of the reason why is because it was illegal for a concubine to leave her master slash husband. It's not really a husband. Uh, and she could be put to death for that. And, and the, the family would be totally dishonored. And so every time, every time the Levite begins to leave, the dad just like brings out the, the drinks and stuff and they drink and get a little hammer and he's like, ooh, it's getting late, you shouldn't drive home. And so he spends the night and then the next day he just feeds him a lot. He's like, well, I'm so stuffed, you can't leave this late. And then, you know, the third night, it's like the game's coming on. We gotta watch it till the end. It's that kind of stuff. They, for five nights, that's what they do. And so eventually, it's all in there. You gotta read it for yourself, verses three to 21. And then eventually, the Levite's like, I'm out of here, man, I'm out of here. Get my concubine and I'm out. And so they leave town. And they, they go to this, uh, this, this town called Gibeah. And what you would do in, the, in antiquity is when you went into a new town, hosp hospitality was such a high value and there were no Holiday Inn Express, you would just go and hang out in the town square, in the town center, and then you were hoping that somebody would be gracious to you and see you as a visitor and they would just let you stay at their house. And you would usually bring some kind of like extra supplies and you kind of tip them on the way out. And so that's what's about to happen. They're in the town square. Everybody's kind of ignoring them. They can't find anywhere to stay. And then this old guy comes over to him and says, whatever you do, don't stay in the 
town square. Now, if there's a soundtrack to this, it changes right here. Dun, dun, dun. It's going to get weird, okay? The music, you would know. Here it comes. Verse 22. They're back at this old guy's house hanging out, and this is the Levite, the concubine, the old man, and the Bible wants us to know they have two donkeys. Okay, so there they are. <laughs> Verse 22. <clears throat> and as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, the city of Gibeah, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. This does not mean get to know him. The biblical word here, know, it's used in Genesis where the Bible says, and Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. The way the NIV translates it is just this, because we want to have sex with him. Something has gone horribly wrong here in Gibeah. This is not a good place. These men gather around the house, they beat on the door, and they essentially say, let, let that visitor out of here because we, we want to gang rape him. That's what they want. And the man, verse 23, and the man, the master of the house, he went out to them and he said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house and do not do this vile thing. Behold, verse 24, behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men wouldn't listen to him. So here's the thing. If you know your Bible pretty good, this should sound eerily similar to another account in the Bible. If you go back to the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 13, there's this place called Sodom. And uh, maybe you've heard of that place before. And there, there's an account that happens in Genesis 13. And Sodom was outside of the nation of Israel. It was outside of the promised land. And there's an account in Genesis 13 that is almost word for word what was happening here. And you see, what happens is this. The, the account of Lot was this, was this guy's name that used to travel with Abraham. And Abraham was the, the father of our faith. And they were so blessed, Lot was so blessed just by traveling around with Abraham that their people got so big and their cattle got so large that, that they said, man, we can't travel together anymore. We got to split up, kind of divide our resources. And so Abraham says to Lot, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll stand up on this hill and you pick wherever you want to live and I'll live on the other side. So if you go east, I'll go west. If you go north, I'll go south, you know, that thing. And so Lot says, I want to live over there. And so when you get in Genesis chapter 13, verses 12 to 13, here's what it says. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. He didn't move in Sodom. He just moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Do you remember what James said? James said that temptation is like a pathway. And it starts over here with just desire, and then it moves to temptation, and temptation gives birth to sin, and then sin leads to destruction. There's this incredible picture that Judges is referencing in Genesis with the story of Lot and Sodom. So it starts out this way. So Lot says, hey, listen, listen, I know this is a, I know this is a, a wicked place. I'm not going to move in. Who would move in there? That place is nasty. I'm not going to move in, but I'm going to set my tents up just kind of next to it. I'm just going to be close to it, but don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not going to be influenced by it. That's Genesis 13, 12 to 13. And then if you, by the next chapter, Genesis 14, this war breaks out and these tribes come in and they take all the people out of Sodom. And one of the people that they're taking out of there is this little guy, Lot. And he says this in Genesis 14, 12. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and he went their way. So he went from just moved, living kind of near it to now he just kind of moved in it. And I'm sure he had very good reasons, right? He probably had to move over there to get his kids in the right school system, and his, his wife, was, she was already a part of the club there, and so, you know, you just drive and going over the bridge, and you know what I'm saying. So he had all of his reasons and why he could rationalize while it was okay to move in. And what we all know is that when you rationalize, you just tell yourselves rational lies. But he just moved in, but he wasn't gonna be affected by it. Then by the time you get to Genesis 19, Verse one, what happens is the city is so sick that God is gonna come and smite the city. He's gonna wipe it out. So he sends some angels there because Abraham is like, please don't wipe out the whole city. I'm sure there's a bunch of good people there and the angels show up and they're like, we're gonna go check and see. And so we get to 19 verse one. It says, two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Here's what you may not know. Guess who sat in the gate? The elders or the leaders of the city. And so what happens is this, is that 
Lot is this picture that, that we are on a pathway that leads to somewhere. And the way that he got to lead, live in this deplorable place, it was just one little step at a time. And so when he goes into the city, he says, he, he's at the gates, he meets the angels, he goes, y'all, y'all just spend a night at my house. And when they get into their house, the men of Sodom gather around the house, knock on the door and say, hey, give us those men that live in there because we want to have sex with them. And then he says, why don't you just take my daughter? Now, the difference here is they're an angel, so they just made everybody blind. They left and they rained fire on the place, all right? <laughs> the judge's account's far worse. So this Levite and this old guy in Gibeah, what they say when they find themselves in this place where people are trying to just destroy them, to save themselves, they're going to give up their girls. That's the move that they want to make. And so, here's what it says. Second part of verse 25. It says, so the man, that's the Levite, he seized his concubine and he made her go out to them. Now, can we just take a little time out here? By the way, the gospel is the exact opposite message. When your enemy, when my enemy, when the, when the devil of hell himself, when this world surrounds our house with evil and death and destruction and is banging on the door of our lives saying, I have one purpose for you, to kill you, to steal from you, and to destroy you. You see, Jesus is like the concubine here because in weakness, he humbles himself and he volunteers. You can kill me to save them. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you don't know the gospel, then what you do anytime any person, any family, any country takes their eyes off of the one true God that sent his son to die a sinner's death on the cross, then what we begin to do is abuse the weak for our own self-preservation. And so he takes his concubine, who he has already been abusing, and he throws her out there. And then some, literally some of the darkest words in all of the Bible and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went, went out to go on his way. Like not even thinking about her. Behold, there was this concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and he went away to his home. Now listen, this is not a story. These are not characters. This is not a parable. This is not once upon a time. This is an event where one man took another man's daughter and treated her like a commodity or like a concubine and just threw her out there until she was raped to death. And so he takes her body and he goes home. And I know some of you are like, what does this have to do with us? I'll get there in a minute. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> so he goes home and he's ticked off. He's ticked off because people have taken from him what is his. And so here's what he does. So he wants to send a letter out to everybody in Israel, but he thinks the letter's not going to do enough. And so he takes a knife and he cuts her body into 12 pieces. And he sends this letter with a body part of his dead concubine. And he kind of redacts the story a little bit. He's like, can you believe what these people have done to me? Join me to help fight against them for the vindication of my own name. And so he sends out the letter and sure enough, sure enough, 400,000 Israelites show up ready to fight. And they say, listen, this town of Gibeah, that's the ones that did it, which is the tribe of Benjamin. And so they go to war. This civil war gets, starts happening in the nation of Israel. And so, and so the, the, the Israelites, the big 400,000, they wipe out the Benjamites, except, except for 600 guys run off to the hills and they, they hide out. And during the war, they, they kill all the, all the men except the 600 soldiers. They kill all the women. They kill all the children. They wipe them all out. And so these 600 soldiers are kind of hiding up in the mountains. And then some months go by. And then regret begins to set in with this Levite and all these soldiers. And they begin to think, what have we done? Who are we to wipe out one of the tribes of God and here's what they say. By the time you get to Judges 21.3, they ask this question. 
And they said, oh, Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And I think God goes, what do you mean what happened in Israel? Israel happened to Israel. You are your own worst enemy. I cannot tell you. I know I look at this and be like, who would ask that? Every person that comes to me for counseling. How could God allow this to happen to me? Bro, you happen to you. 99% of the people I talk to, that's it. The devil doesn't have to do anything to you. He looks at you and be like, you're doing my work fine on your own. Congratulations. I mean, if you, be, if you could be honest, I know this is church, there's no place for that, but if you could be honest for a second, has anybody ever let you down more than you? Has anybody ever lied to you more than you? Has anybody broken more promises to you than you? You have your own set of internal commandments. Has anybody broken them more than you? No. If anybody I knew treated you the way you treated you, I would tell you and tell you not to be their friend. Because it is true. And so... Here's their plan to fix the situation. Everybody caught up here? You see, this man throws this concubine out. They rape her to death, and then he cuts her into pieces, sends the body parts out, creates a civil war, wipes out the Benjamites and sets 600 men, starts feeling bad about it because maybe he's changing redemptive history, and he's like, all right, I've got a great plan. Here's what we're going to do. Since we promised that we wouldn't give any of our wives to the Benjamites, was there any town that didn't bring any soldiers? And sure enough, there's this one little clan of people and so he's like, okay, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Since they didn't come, it's Jabesh Gilead is the name of the town. And since they didn't send any of their soldiers to come help us fight this really unholy civil war, well, let's go and wipe them out and we'll take all of the virgins from their town and then we'll give them to the soldiers, the 600 soldiers, and then, oh, problem solved. That's what they say. Verse, chapter 21, verses 11 and 12, and this is what you shall do, every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So it eventually just leads to human trafficking. We're just going to go steal people and give them to other people. But there's still 200 soldiers that don't have a wife or really a concubine. So then they come up with another idea. I'll just tell you, it's verse, it's, it's a, uh, Verses 20 and 21, then, then they say this. They're like, hey, listen, there's this party. There's this festival in Shiloh. And so tell you what, Benjamites, you, you just guys, you just hide out in the woods. And, and these dancers come out to start dancing. And so if you see one you like, just take her home with you. And then the last verse of, the, of, of Judges says, and there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. That's it. There's not like, it doesn't get better. It just is this, this spiral of depravity that just ends up and just, just utter, how did we get here? How in the world did we start out as a nation following after the one true God, God's favored children, and then get to the place where, we're, where they're giving up concubines to be, to be raped to death, and then they think it's a good idea to solve their problems by human trafficking? That is the place that we get to. You see, the reality is this, is when you, learn, when you learn how to mistreat one girl, you learn how to mistreat all girls, and then you'll mistreat your girl. And you ask that, how'd we get here? Here's how you get there. It's just one step at a time. It's just one little compromise. It's just one little temptation. It's just one step at a time. And this is true in every aspect of our life. It could be drinking. It could be drugs. It could be debt. It could be any addiction. The, the reality is, is when we take our eyes off of our Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm telling you, whatever you put your eyes towards, that's where you go. And it will lead you to a place that you do not want to go. The place that it shows up most and the place that I see it most and what Judges is talking about here is this pathway of destruction in sexual immorality. Pastor Brunson talked about it a little bit last week, but I'll tell you what the Bible says when it comes to sexual immorality, it gives one big piece of advice. It's a one word command. And the command is this, flee. That's what it is. Flee sexual immorality. And every single time any of us in the room have failed when it comes to sexual immorality, it's because at some point in our life, we did not flee. That's what it is. 
At some point in our world, if you back up your story far enough, there was some point where the Lord gave you a way out, and instead of fleeing sexual immorality, you began to flirt with it like Lot did. Hey, no, 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 I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm just going to get next to the town, and then I'm going to live in the town, and now, sure enough, you're one of the leaders at the gate. I'm telling you, it happens over and over and over. Let me tell you how, let me tell you how powerful the temptation and the lure of sexual immorality is in our life. The Bible says flee sexual immorality in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know what the Bible says to do in Ephesians chapter 6? That if you come face to face with the devil of hell himself, you're supposed to stand firm in the armor of God in faith against the devil and his evil schemes. Do you know how crazy that? Let me tell you what this means. If you get home tonight, you get, get in your car and you drive home and you pull up and the devil is standing in your driveway, then I'm telling you, you put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and, the, and you, the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and you hop out and you get to work. I mean, you wear him out because greater is he that is in you than he was in this world. That's what you do. But if your ex-girlfriend from high school is standing there, then you just drive. <laughs> We ain't going home. <laughs> Think about that. It's the one thing the Lord doesn't. You got to run. But we don't flee, we flirt. But like, here's what we do. It's, it's just a lunch. It's just a lunch. It's just a lunch. It's just a lunch. She's just my buddy. Oh, she's my buddy. He, it's even years ago, he's my buddy. Nah, but he's just my buddy. He's my friend. He understands me. He laughs at my jokes. Girls, none of you are funny. None of you are funny. It's just true. Have you ever noticed how cute, like, your cuteness level increases your funny factor? Have you ever noticed that? But like, my cute friends are all so funny. No, they're not. No, they're not. Okay? Or, or it's this. Look, it's just a text. Or we were friends back in the day in college, and I haven't talked to her in so long. I was just going to catch up on Facebook a little bit. And in that moment, I am telling you, I'm telling you, instead of run, we just kind of set up next to it. And this, is, this is where I'm going to hang out for 10 minutes. Or we go, it's just a picture. It's just a picture. It's just a picture. Nobody's getting hurt. It's just a picture. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We live in a culture right now that we act like there is no king in my life and I will do what is right in my own eyes. Here's what Christians do. One of the elders today helped me understand this. The way he put it was great. He said, here's what a lot of us do as people, as Christians. I mean, we, we love Jesus, sure. But we say, God, I want you to look at me and bless me and favor me in this area of my life. And Lord, if you could just turn your head in this area of my life, I'd appreciate it. And we live like that I'm the king of my life and I'll do what's right in my own eyes. Here's the mantra of our day. Do what makes you happy as long as it's not hurting anyone. And for about two decades, preachers and Christians have been saying, pornography is ruining us. And everybody went, what are you talking about? Nobody's getting hurt. And we're like, no, 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 no. It is ruining marriages. It's a sin against you. It's a sin against her. It's a sin against your wife. It's a sin against your husband. It's a sin against God. It is hurting us. And now, just in the past couple of years, science is finally catching up with the Bible. Don't you love it when science catches up with the word of God? Here's the reality. Is that pornography is hurting you? Listen to this. Do you know that if you do a brain scan of a porn addict and a brain scan of a drug addict, they're almost indistinguishable. That's just true, that, that chemical pathways are created in our mind every time we have an erotic sexual experience, whether it's with a person or with, with a picture. That, that chemicals are released in our body like dopamine, that's the feel-good hormone. Testosterone, that's the aggression hormone. And then oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. That when a mom first holds her newborn baby, she gets this dump of oxytocin because it is a bonding agent. That's why if you try to do something to her baby, she turns into mama bear on you. That's how God chemically wired you mama bears, okay? Praise God. Kill somebody, whatever, all right? <laughs> the, same, the same hormones are released when you look at pornography, the same ones. That's why, listen to me, that's why when somebody tries to take it away from you, you get angry and defensive about it. 
It is creating chemical pathways in your brain that, that, that retrain and re-trigger your brain just to be so, so tunnel visioned on one thing that everything else falls away. It truly is an addiction. It is hurting you. It's relationally hurting you. You see, here's what, here's what pornography teaches us every time you look at it. Men, that a real woman isn't enough, that one woman isn't enough, and that your woman isn't enough. And you cannot, for years, treat women like a concubine, then show up with me one day a, on a Saturday, put on a tux, and then be a husband. You just cannot do that. You have trained yourself to do something else. What you have trained yourself to do is to say, a real woman is not enough, one woman is not enough, and baby, you, you're not enough. And then physically, it's hurting you. Of all, of all publications, GQ magazine just came out with an article called 10 Reasons to Stop Looking at Porn. GQ. <laughs> Not exactly, exactly a bastion of Christian conservatism. You know what I'm saying? And they're saying, this is not a good idea. Because people that look at pornography on a consistent basis need greater and greater stimuli, which means it deadens, it deadens your desire for a real woman. I mean, that's why a happily married man that loves Jesus, loves his wife and has fleed sexual immorality, cannot get it through his head how somebody would choose pictures over a real life girl sleeping in the bed in the next room. And the thing is, is that the enemy has come to steal, to kill and to destroy. That there are a lot of negative performance, physiological things that happen to people that look at porn on a regular basis. And here's what it's like. Here's what it kind of reminds me of. I heard a guy say this. You know, back in World War II, the government used to hand out cigarettes to the soldiers for free. And everybody thought, listen, this is great, right? Smoke them up. Everybody looked cool, roll them up in their sleeves, right? And then at some point they went, uh-oh, that's not a good idea. I think we're killing our own soldiers. And then pornography, especially when the internet, just you remember when Al Gore gave us the internet and it explodes on the scene, then right behind it comes pornography and everybody's like, it's not hurting anybody. And I think we're at this point where we're going, uh-oh, uh-oh. And, and, and you might be going, so what in the world does Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 have to do with pornography? And Here's what it has to do. <clears throat> that every single time you participate in pornography, then you are throwing a concubine to the wolves of the porno pornographic industry. And they are raping her to death. Sound a little extreme? That's what it's like. That is what it's like. That, that when you participate in that world, there is a whole dark and demonic world that you cannot just stick, kiss, stick your toe into. That we are, you are, everybody that has ever struggled with this it is, is contributing to this culture that is not just pictures. You see, because not only this, is that is not just a picture, that is a human being, that is a girl, that is somebody's daughter. And nobody's plan ever, nobody's plan ever in a million years was to end up like that. And so I know we would never think about it this way. Because we think about it like this victimless thing. There is no such thing because you are a victim and even to a greater degree, she is being victimized. And can you imagine? Do you know that over 90% of girls that are in the pornographic industry have been molested, abused, and raped? That's a big part of the reason they got there because they were so demeaned and so mistreated at a pivotal age in their life. They thought they were worthless, so they started treating themselves as if they were worthless. And it would be as if you went to that uncle or you went to that cousin or you went to that neighbor and you said, I just wanna thank you. Thank you so much for molesting your niece when she was 12, because if you did that when she was 12, now when she's 20, I get to have whatever I want from her. Appreciate it. You see, it's not much different than you standing in that room and evil is banging down the door and you're saying, hey, look, just take her. Just take her. You see, the reality is this, men, Christian men, do you know what we are called to do? It is a high and honorable calling that God would allow us to be men. He gave us strength for a reason and it's not to take anything. He gave us strength to provide and to protect and to honor and to cherish. 
And so the way this book ends is in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Our hormones and our sexual desires shall not be our king, but Jesus Christ will be our king. And we were meant to be ruled by someone and his name is Jesus. And the reality is this, I put it in your notes. Apart from Jesus, our lives, our families, and our country will fall apart. So how do we respond? What do we do? I'm gonna give you two things. One, well, girls, I wanna talk to you real quick. And I'm gonna be really short, girls, because what am I gonna tell you? Here's what I'm gonna tell you. When it comes to lust and pornography and that whole world, listen, I'm only talking to the Christians. If you're a Christian girl, listen. If you're not, glad you're here. Hope you'll come back next week. It'll be way funner, okay? (laughs) We need your help. Every one of your Christian brothers needs your help. What I'm talking about here is not your fault. It is our responsibility. It is primarily our sin. But as a Christian girl, we need your help. The Bible says we're supposed to honor one another. So let me just ask you this. Your Facebook page, your Instagram page, your Twitter account, does it honor the Lord or does it cause your brothers to stumble? And and if you think, he ain't talking to me, I'm probably talking to you. Probably talking to you. The pictures that you take on Instagram, I'm telling you. Is it about you and getting somebody to look at you and, and this, when you get dressed? Is it honoring to God? Does it help your brothers? Now, I think there's three categories here in both of those kind of things, okay? Um, some of you straight up, you just like it and you need to repent. You just need to repent. And that you are so, more, you're so much more than what you look like. And I, and I would just highly encourage you as your pastor and your brother in Christ, to dress in such a way that attracts all the attention up here to your face, okay? And, and so I think there's some of you that you do, you need to repent, and you're so offended right now, okay? Whatever. I love you too much to not tell you what every guy in every disciple group talks about. And then, and then there's these two other categories. Some of you are just clueless. You just don't know. You're like, really? Really, all right? <laughs> really? This is why the Bible says that older women should teach younger women because they love you enough to be like, oh, darling, you're not quite getting dressed, all right? <laughs> and if some of you are like, why is it so cold here at 1122? That's me. I set the temperature here. I would like to make it colder, all right? Just, you, you know you're gonna be cold when you go to the movies. You know you're gonna be cold when you go to 1122, all right? Go to Hope's Closet, buy a sweater. That's what that's about. That really is. All right, now. So... <clears throat> Some of you are clueless, and then some of you are just careless. Like you're only thinking about you when you're good dressed. I'm just saying we need your help. And then, and then the pushback I get, okay, is this. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to be fashionable. Okay, how about this? Fast from fashion for a season and worry about faithful over fashion. Seriously. Seriously. So we need your help. It's our problem, and I'm just asking for help. Now to the men. Yours won't be as nice. Ground war is this. This is like tactical. You gotta have a ground war and you've gotta have an air war. So this is like tactical. Number one, you just gotta flee, 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 run away. Don't flirt, flee. That means you need filters on everything, every device that you have. You need accountability in your life. Coach Lee used to tell me, if you don't wanna fall down, don't walk in slippery places, okay? So if Home Alone does it for you, not the weird movie, but if you're at home alone and then you're like, oh, then don't be home alone, okay? Get a roommate, move out, walk the streets. I don't know, do whatever. If, if, if the phone in the bathroom, okay, you can either, don't take your phone to the bathroom or quick go to the bathroom. Either one or better. <laughs> what, and here's a, whatever it takes. I don't know if you know this, but for thousands of years, people live without a smartphone. That's crazy, isn't it? You might need to do that, whatever it takes. You could do Jesus style. You know what Jesus said do? Oh, you struggle with that? Gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands, okay? <laughs> so if you don't like me, go with Jesus. You could do that. Parents, your kids are looking at it. If you buy them an iPad and put them alone in their room, they're looking at it. The average age of exposure to pornography in a boy is 12 years old. So Snapchat and iPhones, and they're just a bad idea. Here's the thing. If you look through the scriptures, every time the enemy wanted to stop a major move of God, you know what the devil did? He tried to wipe out a generation of boys. See Moses, see Jesus. That's what he tried to do. 
You know what I see him doing in this generation is wiping out a generation of boys. And here's the problem. By the time they get to me and they're 25 years old, they're already so addicted and the, and the pathways are so ingrained in them because they started looking at it when they were 12 years old and parents, you had no idea. It, it does not matter if they like you or are mad at you. That you've got to watch this thing as if there's a lion prowling around your house trying to devour your babies. If you knew that was true, you would go to the car different, wouldn't you? Like when you were leaving for school, you would check and you'd be like, hold on, y'all, wait, wait, wait. Do I see him? Is he out here? All right, go, go, go. But the reality is there is a lion prowling around your house trying to devour your babies. And so you have got to have an eye on that. So the, the tactical ground level is to, to do whatever it takes, but that will never be enough. If that's the only way we attack it, it just will never be enough. The, the air war is this, men. First of all, is you, you make it a practice to honor every girl you come in contact with as an image bearer of God. That you make it a practice. You make it a practice, not just the cute ones. Every female you come in contact with, the ones at work, the ones in your dorm, the ones at school, the ones that you don't like that much, the ones that get on your nerves, whatever, that you practice treating every single female like a daughter of God. You see, this is what, if the men of 1122, I mean from 18 to 88 or whoever's the oldest person here, that if every single one of us made this the common practice, you know what, the, you know what would begin to happen in, in our city? People would begin to say, every woman in Jacksonville would say this. They'd say, I don't know if I believe what he believes, but I sure do want to work with him. He just treats us differently. He just talks to us differently. And man, a part of what it means to be a man is to treat every single woman, every single woman, at the mall, online, that you know, your family, your mother-in-law, all of them, with honor. And then men, we should not put up with anything, anything that treats a woman like a commodity or a concubine. And I would start with what we entertain ourselves with. And I know what some of you say, well, if I do that, I won't have anything to watch. So if that is what is more important to you, then guess what? You're just like Micah running out going, you've taken, you've taken away my gods from me. What do I have left? Okay. Lastly, really our only hope is this. We talked about it in the very first week, and this is what I want to come back to. You see, in, this, in these days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You and I have a king. We have a king. And he did not come and just conquer. He came and laid his life down so that men and women that struggle and fall, men and women like like you and I, who are idol-making factories, that we could daily turn to him, and we could daily seek him, and we could daily confess that I am struggling, and this is a problem in my life. You see, Martin Luther, when he kicked off this whole Protestant Reformation thing that we are a big fan of, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so I came up with this acronym so that I could remember it when I pray. That this, this is our only hope. Yes, you've got to have a ground war of tactics like crazy, but you better have an air war of repentance or there's no hope. And no matter how addicted you think you are, that if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And so what it looks like is this, is that you just admit it to a just God. You just admit it to a just God. That you expand your view of the gospel. You understand, man, I don't need to just kind of tighten up my behavior, but I need to be saved. That you've got to dig around in the sin behind the sin. What's the underlying heart motivations? What is in me that would allow me to treat her not in a covenant, but to treat her like a concubine? You need to understand your unconditional election, that when God chose you to be adopted into his family, he knew this was the struggle, and listen, and he chose you anyway. He is not disappointed in you because Jesus is the propitiation of our sin, the payment that satisfies, then he could no longer be dissatisfied in you. You need to rest in that. And then finally, you need to ask for strength from the spirit of God to break free. And so as a church, I wanna do what Martin Luther said that we are to do. And listen, it's a part of what we do every single week. 
You see, we, we respond around here in three ways. We sing together. That matters a lot. We give him worship because he's the only one worthy of it. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best, because he loved us first by giving us his best. And then this, this altar time that we have, it is so that we can make repentance a just normative part of our worship to God. That we would understand, God, this is a struggle that right now in my mind makes no sense at all. But somehow later on this week, there'll be this image that just captivates me. And Lord, I don't understand the depth of my depravity. And so Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus to fill that gap between what you require and and who I am. And so what we do week after week and hopefully day after day in your own life. As you come and what Peter says is you cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so as we close, what I'm gonna ask you to do is during our prayer time, is if you're somebody that struggles with this or you know somebody that struggles with this or you know somebody that has been hurt or damaged by this vile, vile evil in our world, by the scheme of the enemy, then I I would implore you, church, to come and to beg God to move to move in your own life, to move in your friend's life, to heal, to restore, to, to set people free, that we would be a church that prays and prays and prays that, that God would break this incredible grip on our society, starting with us right here at the Church of 1122. So would you please stand and pray with me. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you first loved us. And God, I thank you that we don't have to fake it here because when Jesus died on the cross, He declared to the whole world that every single one of us were sinners in need of a savior. And so Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, by the love of the Father, by the authority of the word of God, God, that you would shine a light in dark places and that you would set your captives free. God, that we would no longer fall into this cycle of remorse and resolution, but that we would repent and that we would turn to you. And God, I pray I pray that the stronghold of the enemy would be broken and that the church of 1122 would be known. It would be known where men stand up and act like men, where men leverage their authority and they leverage their strength not to take, but to give. God, that we would be willing to lay down our lives for our sisters, that we would treat every single person, particularly your daughters, God, with the honor and the respect the way you loved them and laid down your life for them. Lord, I pray, I pray for true repentance among your people. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as you are ready to respond, won't you come?